Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we talk about the Bible. Oh, man, I thought you were just going to go for the whole thing there. No, I thought uh, and I, was I, was like, looking at, I was looking at you to see how you're going to respond, and then I lost my my point in the notes. Hey, you know, it's all it's all good. Like, it's, it's not a responsive thing. Are you going to keep this in? Yeah. I said, like like Aaron said, <laughs> welcome, everybody. This is an episode of Let's Read the Bible. And if you're wondering what Let's Read the Bible is, it's a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. There it is. Oh, man. If you'd like to follow along with us, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. Yes, and we have a code here at the church that says we will laugh loud, hard, and often. Uh, nothing is more fun than serving God with people you love. And so Evan and I love each other, even though we don't always agree. Uh, and so I thought it'd be fun to start something a little different. Uh, I liked it. I didn't expect you to keep this in the podcast, but you are. Uh, and so uh, my normal spiel, I guess you can say, is uh, I just want to invite you to send in questions. If you have questions as you're reading along, we try to take time at the end of every podcast to answer some questions. And you guys have been faithful in sending in those questions. So keep sending them in. Uh, maybe this is your first time listening. I'm so glad you found us. Uh, I would love to hear any kind of feedback or questions you may have. Uh, there's two ways you can send in those questions. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line as a podcast question, or you can direct message our Facebook page. We are the Grove Church in Washington State, Little Green Leaf, um, and that's where we you can DM us there with those questions as well. Uh, unfortunately, today we're not going to have time for a question at the end of our, our podcast this week, but we'll come back at you next week with a question being answered. So appreciate your patience and flexibility there, but sometimes we're just not able to. So, All right. Well, this week we are finishing up. The book of 1 Samuel, we're launching into 2 Samuel. As a reminder, these are meant to be one continuous work, so it's not like 1 Samuel was written and then there was a sequel later. It's kind of, you know, <laughs> it's just back then, not everything could fit on a scroll. So that's it's just the like thing. the movies Back to the Future. True. They were may have been, but just kidding. 1 Samuel wasn't recorded or written. 2 Samuel wasn't recorded, written wasn't written afterwards. Wow, Aaron. Right. Uh, learn how to speak. So, And that uh, is the same for Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Yep. They're all supposed to be one, not all together, but each of those are divided yeah. up just it's because It's one of book, but divided into two books for us. Anyway, listener, not that you're super interested in that. So let's dive into where we're at. And if you thought to yourself last week, boy, Evan, what you said there was kind of dumb. Well, we're going to get to that here a little in a little bit as well. So I have to, I have to issue a correction, Aaron, because... <laughs> Apparently, I just spoke without thinking last week, but what? we'll get you? to it. I what? know. All right. Well, in chapter 27, David and his men returned to Gath. So that remember, that's a city of the Philistines. It's right on the border. And they serve Akesh the king there for a while. Uh, they would conduct raids against different cities. Um, but I, I love this little detail. They would lie to Akish about where they raided. <laughs> so they would raid, like they would never raid Judah, even though that's his job. And then they would tell the king like, oh yeah, we raided this town in Judah. And Akish would be like, oh, sweet. Good job. And then his whole thing was like, obviously David is loyal to me because he can never show his face in Judah after he's been raiding them so much. And David's like, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. it's a great picture of being shrewd. There you go. Wise as a serpent, as the mm -hmm. as they say. Yep, shrewd as a serpent, gentle as a dove. Oh man, he wasn't always gentle, but well, yeah, yeah. yeah David is David's a lot of things, but gentleness. I mean, I, he's not really one of them. Uh, anyway, in chapter twenty-eight, Saul continues his uh, his slide as a leader, and this is kind of this is kind of his final straw. Mm -hmm. We'll say um, he goes to visit a medium. And he wants to visit with the spirit of Samuel. So remember Samuel, we learned he passed away uh, a few chapters earlier. Uh, and in case you're wondering to yourself, boy, that seems like a sin. 
It is. So, yeah, in, <laughs> Wait, in, what? In the law, it's straight so up. So if you are currently consulting a medium, you might want to reconsider. Yeah, it's one of those. you love Jesus. It's one of those things where it's not even a sin by like, you know, like, well, hey, this is a principle that we can extrapolate from the law. Like it's straight up, hey, don't, don't uh, go with mediums or necromancers. That's yep. just kind of a, that's no bueno. It's in the Bible, folks. Oh, man. So it's also in a place called Endor, which for all you Star Wars nerds, that's fun. Uh, no, it has everything to do with the fictional moon, but it's there. Uh, and then finally, we get, here's the deal. It doesn't go well for Saul. So what? this is in 1 Samuel 28. Oh, sorry. I should also say, uh, he meets the spirit of Samuel. So this is a successful, it's a successful medium yeah. <laughs> as far as what happens. Uh, but this is what happens. It says, then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do, which in some ways is actually kind of sad because you see mm-hmm. like Saul, Saul, Saul is fully aware that Yahweh has completely abandoned him and there's no more, there's no more prophets. And so he's trying to get in contact with the one prophet who he knew would tell him what God wanted him to do. And Samuel said, why then did you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with your hand into the hand of the Philistines and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Oh, that's sad. That's rough news. So Saul is at war with the Philistines and Samuel basically straight up tells him like, this is, this is the end of the road tomorrow. You and your line are going to be wiped out. Well, not everyone in the line, but we'll get to, we'll get to that guy later on, but that's a good story. Anyway, not this part though. This part's just, this part is all bummer. uh, And it's kind of just the wrapping up of Saul's failures. And then we go from this scene kind of over back to Philistia or Philistia and Akash is convinced by his general. So Akash, he completely trusts David. He's like, oh yeah, David is my guy. Obviously he's always going to be with me. And his generals apparently being a little bit smarter or maybe just more detached from the situation are like, you know, I don't think that's the case, man. And so Akash is finally like, okay, fine, David, go home for this battle. I don't want you because, you know, you're worried about, you remember that scene in Braveheart where like the Irish charge the Scots and then they just like shake hands and then they join against the English. That's, I think that's what they're worried about. They're worried about David charging in against the Judeans and then just yeah, turning Because they around. were thinking about that scene from Braveheart yes, exactly. while they were that is talk, exactly, having this discussion. So. That's exactly what they were thinking about. <laughs> uh, and so anyway, so uh, it works out because David doesn't have to make that choice. He doesn't have to theoretically go to war with Judah because, I mean, you know, here's the deal. That would make it hard <laughs> to be king. Yeah. Uh, and so when, but when he and his men return to their home, they find that their city has been burned and their families have all been kidnapped. So that's not great news. Nope. So David takes his 600 mighty men and they begin pursuing the, uh, the Amalekites are the ones who, who did the raid and they, yeah, they, they they keep crossing, they come to a river and 200 of the men are just too exhausted to move forward. And here's the deal. David's mighty men, I will not blame a single one of, I will not call a single one of them weak. I'm, I guarantee you that if they actually were doing this, that means they were to the point of like actual physical exhaustion. So I'm giving those 200 a pass. Uh, but David and 400 of his mighty men cross the river. They catch up to the Amalekites and they fight for over 24 hours. It says they fight from twilight all the way through the night, 
all the way to the next night. So pretty, it's pretty intense. It's a uh, battle. Oh man. But they, uh, they rout them and all but 400 of the Amalekites are killed, which is, you know, hey, it matches the number of the mighty men. So that's kind of cool. Uh, and then good news. And this is actually like, this is really cool. Uh, no one that had been taken had been killed. So all of the families of all the families of David and his men were restored to them. Mm-hmm. So while this is going, so I, you, you should know. So essentially David is sent away either on the night that Saul contacts Samuel or right before. So while the battle is going on, this is what's happening with David. So this is a little bit in the future because we're now in chapter 31. We are going to go back to that battle. So this is what's happening while David is returning home and then eventually warring with the Amalekites. So it says, and this is chapter 31, starting in verse one. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and the slain and the, and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchi Shua, the sons of Saul. So that is Jonathan, David's best friend dies yeah. here. So that's, that's a bummer. It's probably the saddest part of the whole story. Yeah. It really, yeah. Jonathan's a great guy though. It's just like, it is what it is, I suppose. Uh, the battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. So essentially Saul's worried about being tortured and paraded around. So he wants his armor bearer to kill him there. Uh, but his armor bearer would not, uh, for he feared greatly. And there's this whole idea of, you know, you, the Lord, the one who the Lord anointed is king. You do not want to be the one yeah. to kill them, uh, which we're going to see come up here in a little bit. Uh, so therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, so this is, sorry. So that's kind of the, that's the wrap up of mm-hmm. what happened with Saul. I, I could have cut it there, but I really like this story here of just kind of some of the some of the heroic things that happened right after this. So it says, and when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley of those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped him of his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. It kind of reminds me of um, Samson a little bit where mm-hmm. he's kind of, it, obviously Saul is dead here and Samson was alive, but he's kind of being paraded around as, as a trophy to the yeah, Philistines. And there's part of me that wonders that that would have par- partially been in in Saul's mind because he no doubt would have heard about Samson at this point because he came after the judges, the period of the judges. That's a good point. And so uh, there is this, even when he says like, kill me so that way these guys won't come and and in essence take it like just use me as a as a as a as a trophy um and so there's part of me that wonders if there was that in that that thought as well because it would have been a fairly recent to story as well yeah into Saul's life as well so yeah it's it's definitely not explicitly say but I really like that that he probably I, I would I would venture to say it's it's uh very plausible at least mm-hmm. that Saul has that in mind when he's saying this uh, and so it says, they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. So I just love, yeah, I love these guys. They're, they they see what's happened to their yeah. king and they go, they make it right. They bring him back. And so Saul and his sons get the 
the burial in Israel that they deserve, and they are not left forever in the land of the Philistines. So yep. good for, we don't get names, so good for the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. And that brings us into 2 Samuel. So 2 Samuel is essentially, if 1 Samuel is about the reign of King Saul and the conflict between the two of them, yep. 2 Samuel is about the reign of David and uh, and a lot of conflicts that are c- going to come up. Uh, one of them with the descendant of Saul that we'll be talking about this week. Uh, so 2 Samuel begins with David hearing about the death of Saul, the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. All of this, again, so all of this transpired while he were they were rescuing the family. So mm-hmm. he's returning back from that battle and he's hearing about this. Uh, he hears the news from a young man who claims to have killed Saul. And he does this in order to carry favor with David because he's like, oh yeah, David, you're the next king. Yeah, guess what? Saul's dead. Um, I, I killed him. So, and it's not even like a... Um, He's not saying like he murdered him or stabbed him in the back. It's kind of like he basically he's he's claiming to have done what the armor bearer did not do. Uh, and so this doesn't go super well for him as David puts him to death. <laughs> so he's, he's like, you kill, like, how dare you kill the Lord's anointed? And then the, the, the young man is killed. So uh, awkward. So, and it's such a deep level of respect. Like you just see like, yes, this is the guy that has been pursuing David for so long. This is like, this is David in, in, in the height of his character, um, understanding it's God's timing, it's God's justice, it's God's vengeance, it's God's will, like, and all of these different things. And so it's even, he still respects the authority and the, the anointing of Saul when he was anointed king. Mm-hmm. Um, even though the, the hand of God had been pulled away from Saul at that point, there still was a deep respect. Um, and it's such, a, I mean, it's such, a, it, it sounds almost trivial to just kind of bypass it a bit, but it's, it's such a profound moment, I think. In the transition from Saul to David as king, there's still this deep recognition for the leadership behind him, well, so to speak. Yeah, I think I think the pendulum swung a little bit on our opinion of David, just because I think the most common way that we hear David used, and maybe this is just in Christian circles, um, but it's an example of someone who is very flawed, but mm-hmm. still being used by God because of his affection toward God. And yeah. so we think of you know David as um, the guy who had Uriah murdered and married Bathsheba, um, which, spoiler, that's coming coming up later. Um, But yeah, David has some low lows, but I think oftentimes we we view that idea of, and it's absolutely true, that David was a flawed man, he committed grave sins, and and yet his heart was so toward the Lord that God calls him a man after my own heart. Yeah. Um, But sometimes we forget that David has very high character moments as well. There's a reason he's the greatest king of Israel. And yeah, I love that you made us kind of stop and pause and and reflect on this because it's absolutely true. Like this is one of the very high character moments of David. Well, and it's interesting to just quickly say this as well. Like we oftentimes can define in hindsight as we're reading through the historical books, we can define someone based upon circumstances or a moment and, and we forget the progression that exists. David was absolutely high character and David absolutely had low character moments. And, and neither one defines him. They all define him. Sure. And, and I think even in life and in reality, right? We look, I mean, dare I even dip my toes back into the political worldview and the political conversation of, of not just our current day and age, but just in general, the, the tension that exists to have how we define someone, a president, a governor, a leader. Uh, we, we define them based upon one circumstance rather than reviewing their entire lives. And understanding those lives should be typecasted and understood that's part of who they are or part of of their story that they grow, learn, mature from, or they're, they're, it, it all blends together. But at the same time, it, it's 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 really hard to only hyper-focus on one instance. And, and right. when, we neg- when we neglect all the other instances, it, it's, it's unfair. 
I mean, because I can sit here and make an argument, David was the best man in the world. No, he wasn't. Like David had a lot of low lows, yep. but he also had high character moments. And so there is this significance, I think, in, in, in view of God's mercy and grace. It's the story, the total story that matters the most and how God's redemptive narrative is interwoven throughout that entire story. Well, and I think it's, well, this, is, this is a side tangent, but I think, it's, I think it's a good conversation that we're having. I think that's so true of every major biblical character mm-hmm. is, and because, because the Bible is a book primarily about Yahweh's relationship with the people of Israel and, and by extension us today. Um, but it's also very much a book about real people. Yeah. And there's no one sans Jesus that we get a long portrait of in the Bible that does not come across as being very flawed in, in like, cause my, my mind goes to like of the characters in the Bible who are like, great. It's like Boaz who's in, you know, <laughs> we don't know much about Boaz yeah. and Ruth. We, we, we get, um, a fair, they're probably the most fleshed out characters that we get who come out looking rosy, but the rest of them that I'm thinking of in my head are all kind of just like they're, um, footnotes is the wrong word, but they're, they're in the, they're in the story of scripture for very little. Whereas yeah. when we get, a full, basically all of Samuel is about, not all of Samuel, but so much of Samuel is about David. And yeah. we get that idea, um, the Pentateuch with Moses. And we get this idea of someone who's a very flawed individual. So obviously there's some biblical characters who have less lows than other ones, but for the most part, we're seeing characters where they have these incredible moments of relationship with Yahweh, these incredible moments of faith, but they also have these incredible failures and that yeah. should give us comfort. Yeah. And, and the majority of those people they were never disqualified by God right. to be part of it, like to be, to enter in his, his kingdom. What disqualified him is the rebellion and rejection of, in the Old Testament, like Yahweh is God. Um, and New Testament is the, the, the truth of Christ revealed uh, in, in the gospel, the death, the resurrection, and, and now the invitation. So, mm-hmm. um, and so I think it's interesting too for, I mean, just to, man, there's just so many layers to understand it. It's so easy to hyper-focus. And that's what I think I like about reading the Bible in a year in an ongoing manner, because this is our fourth season, you and I doing this? Yep, season four. But it, it I mean, that means we will have read through the Bible every year the last four <laughs> years. Uh, but it is, it's, it's, a to- it's a total picture. It's a, it's, a, it's a holistic picture, I guess I can say it that way. But it really is. It, it's, it's, it's such a, a poignant moment to remember the significance of stories. And David is not, he's not an old man yet. He's not, you know, he's, he's young. He still has this... This, this passion, desire to please the Lord. And there's moments uh, that he becomes complacent and comfortable or apathetic. And I just think that that's, those are coming. And we, when we, when we know the whole story, it, it's really easy to hyper-focus on things, but we also have to view the progression here. So yep. anyways, all no, that to say. Oh, absolutely. No, I think, I think that was a good little sidetrack to take, but to, to get back to Samuel. So David writes, uh, he writes a lament for Saul and Jonathan. And then we're told that it's also contained within the book of Jashar, um, which again, I just love those little footnotes because it shows us that there's, there's, this isn't myth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is real history. And they're referring to sources that they had back then as they're compiling all of this. So really cool. Uh, in chapter two, David is anointed king of Judah, not over all of Israel yet, because there is still some divisions that are happening. Um, and it also kind of shows us the, the divides that are going to come in a couple of generations. So remember, the, the kingdom is going to split. We're going to get the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. We're starting to see that those two places have their own identity here. Uh, so Abner brought Saul's son Ishbosheth to Gilead, and there he was declared king over all of Israel. So there's still one son of Saul left. And so you get Ishbosheth and Abner are kind of on one side, and then you get David. And we're introduced to 
He's not a new character because he's been around, but I think this is the first time we actually hear about him is this is Joab, the son of Zeruiah, who is the brother of Abishai, who is, uh, yeah, as we said last week, my favorite of the mighty men. Uh, <laughs> what? So David and Ishboth, Ish, oh, that's a hard one to say. Ishbosheth's forces clash at the battle of Gibeon. Abner leads the armies of Ishbosheth, and then David and Joab lead the forces of David together. Uh, in here, we actually get the first, we also get the first recorded death of one of David's mighty men. And this is uh, Asael or Asael. Uh, and he is the other brother. So there's three sons of Zeruiah. It's Joab, Abishai, and Asael. So he runs down Abner's chariot while he is fleeing. So this is after the uh, the forces of Abner have been routed. And he's seemingly killed by accident. Um, so you get Abner saying, you know, hey, like, leave me alone, turn aside, go to the other chariots. And he keeps like pursuing him. And he's running down a chariot. So he's incredibly fast. Like this is, this is a, this is a, it's verging on the miraculous. I would say probably, I guess it probably is miraculous that this is happening. Um, and so Asael refuses to turn away, but it says that Abner stabs him with the butt of his spear. So he's not, you know, he's not turning the point. So I, it, it, you can interpret it both ways. I kind of interpret it as Abner's kind of killed him on accident, but mm -hmm. he's moving so fast that it says the butt of the spear fully goes through him. So he's still impaled by a spear, but I'm giving Abner the benefit of the doubt, I guess, because he specifically says, um, please turn aside. How can I show my face to your brother, Joab, if I have to kill you here? So yeah. that's the whole thing. Uh, but so that happens and it says that he dies right there. So you kind of just like, he, he, uh, falls down, he falls down dead after Abner does this. Uh, and so Abner, yeah, Abner has respect for Joab. He didn't want to anger him. And then Joab and Abishai pursue Abner, but he eventually escapes. Eventually, Abner would join David. So you kind of see that this is, it's not the official end of Ishbosheth, but it's pretty much, it's pretty much over. His army's been routed and his his top general is gone over to David's side. Uh, and Joab isn't exactly stoked about this. And we'll see that Joab, ugh, bit of a hothead. He's going to, he's going to get himself in trouble. Uh, but we'll learn more about that in the coming weeks. And particularly at the beginning of first Kings, we're going to see a little bit of what happens with Joab. So, but that's, that's what we call a, a teaser for future weeks listeners. Uh, so after some time passes, Joab and Abishai murder Abner. Although Joab seems to be the one who takes on most of the blame, which is kind of interesting because you, you always hear about how David is angry with Joab that he does this. He's not angry with Abishai, at least that I can remember reading. So it's yeah, kind of I don't remember it either. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how that happens. Um, so Ishbosheth hears of Abner's death and he flees with the rest of Saul's family. We hear here that one of Jonathan's sons, Mephibosheth, which is speaking of boy, Saul, give your kids easier names to say. Uh, he falls and he is made lame. So in other words, he can't walk uh, during all of this chaos. And we're going to hear more about Mephibosheth later. Mm -hmm. uh, Ishbosheth is eventually murdered in his sleep, and with that goes the last challenger to David. So, well, there's there's another guy, but. So goes the last challenger to David's crown from Saul's family, yes. at least. And then we'll uh, we'll dot, see. Dot, dot. Yeah, we'll see who. I'm, <laughs> I feel like we're just doing a bunch of like things that are going to come later. But there's going to be another big. Uh, there's going to be a big rebellion coming later. So uh, David is then anointed king of all Israel, and the ark is finally returned to Jerusalem, where David dances dances for joy, possibly naked. And this is how I've always heard it taught. But I've actually I was when I was studying through this, it says that the more likely interpretation is that. He wasn't wearing royal robes, and so when uh, when Michael says, "Why are you dancing uncovered?" It's not necessarily full on nakedness. It could also be yeah. 
So that sort of thing. It's funny. I, I've always heard the term naked, but I've always also understood that it's not actually total nude. Like he's not totally naked because sure. there's shame included in that. This when, isn't Michelangelo's when David. Some, exactly. When someone's uncovered, right? I mean, you see this throughout the Old Testament moments, but there's shame that's included in, in seeing someone naked. So if David is dancing joyfully, you know, in his birthday suit, then th- that there's shame in that. Um, and shame that he not only heaps upon himself, but also upon those who see him. So, so knowing that years ago, I never, I, I began, I, I then understood it's not to be totally nude, but there's like, there's undergarments, like there's not underwear, but there's like right. base layers. And he would always have robes. Like you're always supposed to, there's royalty established to it. So, yeah. yeah. So, and, and so listeners last week, I said, um, Michael really never does wrong by David. Forgot about this. So I, I stand by my statement a little bit in that um, she doesn't like turn him over to Saul or do great evil. But here she's obviously very upset with David for what happened. Well, here, we'll read the passage and we'll talk about it for a little bit. Uh, so it says, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place and then the uh, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David finished the offering, the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among, among the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, and as one of the vulgar fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. So Michael, not, you know, she's like, this isn't how a king's supposed to act. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father. Okay, well, let's escalate that argument. Wow. And above, you shouldn't say to your wife. Above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be absurd and uh, sorry, abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Okay, so what we talked about last week is there's a there's a a secret wife, not secret, but there's a wife of David <laughs> who we don't really get a backstory for. We just get it's and it feels more like a nickname. So this there's it kind of hinges on how do you interpret verse 23. So when it says, And Michael the daughter of Saul had no child to the day of her death, does that mean that God punishes her for this by making her barren and she no longer has children. And that possible, so by extension, possibly her and David um, reconcile later in life. And that's why she's given that nickname, which is possible. I'm not going to say probable, but it's possible. Um, The other way to interpret this is when it says that she has no child, it means that her and David are completely separated after Mm -hmm. that point. And that's why she has no children after this. Um, And I suppose the other way you could read it is that God punishes her and her and David separate as well. So anyway, needless to say at this point in their marriage, they're, they're pretty much done. It's not great. They're at all. Yeah. They're in, in essence, well, for modern day terms, they're separated at the very least. Yeah. And so while Michael is very loyal to David in terms of even choosing him against her own father and protecting him from murder here, she definitely has grown angry with David. And also, I guess it's it's important to remember that they, at this point, have been separated for years because David's been on the run. He's had his other two wives with him, Abigail and the one whose name I can't remember. But The one who can't be named. The one, yeah. Just kidding. uh, But 
they're over and she, they're the ones that he rescued. But Michael has been in Jerusalem this whole time. So there you go. And that's where that's where we leave it this week. Kind of yeah. a, dep- kind well, of a depressing it, note. No doubt. I mean, there's obviously grief going on because of her father and there's grief going on because of the, the now the tension she's in because her husband is now the rightful king, but her family has been chased out. Like there's so many different dynamics that are in play that we can't fully understand. Um, so it's, it's, if I want to speculate and jump into the, to the, into the weeds of that a little more, then it's kind of one of those things like totally hotheaded. I totally see that moment. Like you're now dancing undignified, like the, the term uh, more, what does it say? Uncontemptible. I will be more, I, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. In essence, he's saying I'm devoted to the Lord above you. Like right. that's a significant statement. Um, but it's definitely kind of interesting, challenging to, to just like, there's so many dynamics at play here, but yeah, she, I, I don't know how I interpret it necessarily. And, and, but it definitely is, is thought provoking to consider <clears throat> that she may not be, that she may have been uh, punished for the, this, this kind of outburst, so to speak. But well, before we move on to the book of Colossians, we do want to take a moment to remind you to say, Hey, you know, if you're listening on particularly Apple Podcasts or Spotify and you haven't left us a five-star review yet, we would love if you did. It yeah, sure please. would help us out. So it helps get the podcast out there to more people. It would make really me do really happy it. too, just to talk over it. It would make me really happy. That's no, I'm true. Just kidding. It would, but yeah. All right, Colossians. Yeah, so we're uh, j- continuing. So this is part of the epistle, prison epistles, prison epistles, prison epistles, Ephesus, we, Ephesians we talked about last week. Oh my goodness. I'm just having a problem speaking today. Hey, um, at least you didn't have so to say Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth and <laughs> Gethsemane and Deuteronomy, all those words. But, um, and so we're jumping in, into Colossians t- this week. Uh, we're actually going to wrap the book up. It's only four chapters, but it's an incredible book. Uh, and, I, and I hope that you'll be able to take some time and read it a little slower than normal. Uh, and sometimes I feel like these reading plans, you just kind of read quickly. And so hopefully that's going to, it's, it's going to, you're, you're going to enjoy your time with it. A couple quick things about con- the context of, of Colossians. Uh, it is a letter written from prison, uh, most likely while Paul is imprisoned in Rome. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, but it possibly also is from him writing in Ephesus when he was in prison in Ephesus. Um, and then there's even kind of an undisclosed imprisonment in Caesarea that we don't really have a lot of information about, but most likely he's writing from Rome and, and to the people of Colossae. It's kind of similar to where in the book of John, we're told that the miracles that are recorded of Jesus is nowhere near to the amount of time, the amount, the amount of miracles that Jesus committed. Um, I, I think I would imagine the amount of times we hear about Paul being thrown in prison, prison is not actually yeah, close right. to the amount of times it happened. I think you're probably right. Um, and so, so we see it's written from prison. It is written by Paul and actually Timothy is included as far, part of the authorship from the very beginning of the letter where Paul says, uh, he says, greetings from Paul, the apostle of Christ and Timothy. Um, so there is some inf- influence from Timothy in the writing of this letter. Um, the theme specifically centered on the supremacy of Christ. You're going to see that reoccurring throughout all four chapters. Uh, and mainly because there were, there's reports that we find most likely from Epaphras, uh, which I'll get to in a minute, but there were reports of false teachers saying that Jesus was a great start uh, to this whole Christian thing, but that there was more to be done afterwards. Uh, almost sounds a little bit like today's world sometimes. Um, and so Paul and Timothy are taking time to break down Christ's authority, his power, his sufficiency. Uh, in other words, it's Jesus plus nothing. That's enough because he's enough. Jesus, we Jesus, we don't need to do more uh, for salvation, for acceptance and belonging into God's family, for the redemption uh, of God through Christ to be satisfied in full. We don't have to do anything else. And so, uh, Paul is addressing these concerns and these con- the, these uh, lies from the false teachers. Um, the recipients, real quick, they uh, were in a small town 
in Southwest Asia Minor, uh, but we're part of the church at Colossae. Uh, and this is where Epaphras, who was a leader in the church, he's most, the one who most likely visited Paul in prison uh, and informed him of what's been happening. So this is where Paul is writing and addressing his letter from. Uh, a quick outline uh, gives us a salutation of prayer, which is typical of Paul to do a greeting. Um, and then there's uh, a bunch of conversations where Paul jumps into the argument. So uh, I'm going to just kind of do uh, not an over a quick overview, but I'm going to do a, uh, an overview that gives us an intro. Uh, we find in chapter one, this greeting. Um, and I, I do want to reiterate this. When Paul writes grace and peace to you, it's not like a... It's not like a generic greeting where sometimes I feel like that's ours. Hey, how are you? Like, it really is this intentional piece that Paul puts in his letters uh, because it does multiple things. One, it is Paul's prayer and his desire to see God's grace and peace um, be fulfilled among God's people. It is a re-anchoring of their, uh, the authority and also understanding the hope and the truth of the gospel. It's by grace alone, which provides peace. Uh, and so there's an intentionality to him writing at the end of his salutation, his greeting, a hey, grace and peace to you. Um, then he shifts into this thanks uh, and affirmation. So he, he affirms them from what he heard from Epaphras in this first chapter. He, he affirms what God's been doing in their lives. He affirms their faith. He affirms the journey. Uh, and this oftentimes is like done to uh, help create not credibility, but um, connection. Uh, Paul may, would most, most likely not have known very many people from this church. Um, and so when he has a moment to affirm their faith, a f- moment to affirm the work that God has done, the, the moment to affirm their belonging to God's family, to the brethren, because um, he would refer to them as brothers and sisters, the, the moment of belonging, he, allow, he then uh, not just affirms their adoption, uh, but he also then kind of also establishes his authority as an apostle building God's church. Uh, and so he gives he gives thanks for them. Uh, and then he prays. And I said this in Ephesians when we were breaking down Ephesians. I love the Pauline prayers. I love the way he prays because there's times where I feel like if he were alive today writing his letters or creating vlogs or sending videos of greeting to churches throughout the world that he's helped participate in planting and leading, um, these prayers I think are powerful and important. I think that they speak directly to us right now. Uh, and so I'm going to read verses 9 to 14. Uh, and so it says this, it says, for this reason, and again, comes out of based upon what I, I've heard about you, I want to affirm the work of Christ in you. I want to affirm your good faithfulness. Um, and he says, for this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. And this, then he shifts into this. He says, we are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the father who has enabled you to share in the saints inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves in him. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I love that he takes a moment and it's not just a, hey, I'm, I've been praying for you, which I think is something we always do and say today, all right, I'm praying, I'm going to be praying for you. But he, he puts in words, this has been my prayer for you. Um, and I find as a pastor, one of the things that we get to do on a weekly basis is follow up uh, with people within our, our own church family. Uh, we, we receive prayer requests and, and we get the privilege of being able to follow up with them. And it's one thing to call and say, hey, I just want to follow up, leave a voicemail, let you know, I'm praying for you uh, if I don't get through to him. But it's another thing to stop and pause for a moment and say, this has been my prayer. 
as I've reflected on your, your, your card, as I reflected on your request, this has been my prayer. And then to be able to vocalize the prayer, I think there's such a personal depth and a power that exists there. Uh, and so I just love that we get to see some of that with Paul. You see his humanity a bit. You see his, 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 his pastoral heart. You see that his desire uh, is not just lip service, but it really is deep and, and true. And so I love that even today it translates to affirm me in my faith and following Christ as well. Uh, and so I love that piece of it. And so I think it's a real, a real great portion. Um, we get this second section uh, in this outline of, of it's, uh, it's referred to as the Christ hymn um, and reconciliation. And it's in the verses 15 to 23. And I'm just going to say this, I could spend all sorts of time in this passage alone. Um, this is probably one of the most articulate, powerful hymns about Christ. And now it, 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 Paul may not have written this himself. One of the things I was reading in um, some of the software that I have, some of the different re, uh, resources I have is that Paul may not have written this hymn himself, but he he, he could have taken it from modern day hymns um, or, or different portions of it and create it and just put it in the letter. At the end of the day, this is one of the most simply one of the most simple, powerful statements of who Christ is and his supremacy. Well, I think you see with, as the epistles go on and you see the church begin to grow, it goes from this idea of when they're talking about Jesus, they're talking about, yeah, this guy I know, or this guy mm -hmm. I knew, like, yeah. oh, hey, remember that guy? And as, as time goes on, you start to see them realize we need to record this mm -hmm. because eventually we're going to die everyone who had ever met Jesus is going to die and we need to put this forward to the new generation. So I think that's why you see um, letters start pretty early because it makes sense just to kind of communicate with people. Yep. But you see the gospels kind of come 20, 30 years after Jesus's um, ascension because they start to realize the, the, the disciples themselves are getting to the end of their lives. And so I wonder if this hymn is kind of part of that where you begin to see statements of faith mm -hmm. making their way into the later epistles specifically because they're starting to really catechizes the wrong word maybe, but like bring, bring, basically bring the faith into a concrete, like this is exactly what we believe so that there's no yeah. confusion. Because we already see also like, we see tons of, uh, there's the Judaizers that Paul deals with all the time yeah. where they're trying yep. to say like, no, you need to be completely Jewish and then you can become a Christian. Uh, toward the end, especially like with the writings of John, we start to see the Gnostics come in and they're kind of this whole, um, Jesus was holy spiritual and not, um, and not physical. That was the not, yeah. And the other one was the opposite of that. So you kind of see them at this point wanting to make sure that there is a clear idea of what we as Christians believe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I, I think you're seeing this and you'll see this progression, right? So in Paul's letters, there's a purpose to writing, obviously. Sometimes it's to build the church, but it's also to to correct, bring, bring clarity, encourage, affirm. And so knowing that Paul is is establishing a, a purpose to respond to what is being taught. But he also does it very methodically. He also does it very personally. Um, and there's the gospel is centered and central in every one of his letters. Um, and again, remember, like the, the his whole heartbeat uh, is is addressing the fact that it's saying, yes, Jesus is great, but there's more. And Paul's saying, no, 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 Jesus is supreme. He's sovereign. There's nothing better or greater than him. Nothing is needed. He's it. And so he's, he's setting up the, the, he's setting the stage for the remainder of the argument. And, and it's a very quick argument because it's only a few chapters long, but it is, it's laying the foundation that Christ is enough. He was there. And he says, he's there at creation. He's there. He's the one that holds things together. So it's, it's this beautiful moment to stop, reflect and highlight and respond to Jesus. Um, and, 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 and not respond necessarily, but he, he highlights and prioritizes and put the spotlight right on Christ. And then he shifts into, uh, you know, this next section of, of the book of Colossians where 
Paul addresses not just himself, but the Colossians themselves, and then addresses the empty philosophy that they're they're hearing being taught. Uh, we see that the center of, of verse 24 to 29 is on God's plan for salvation, which is revealed in Christ. And then I love this, that it's also expanded to include Gentiles and Jews, not just Jews, which is a sticking point for Jews, uh, non-Christian, you know, the Judaizers and the different individuals that, that Paul is having to, to combat all the time. But he, he reveals and he, he takes this beautiful hymn and then he says, hey, this is this plan for salvation was revealed in Christ, and it was expanded to include Gentiles, which is part of the audience he's writing to. Uh, he then affirms and reaffirms and reminds them that Christ reveals the full truth of God. It's not just a portion of the truth. It's not Jesus, but then there's more. Again, he's he's attacking and hitting these argu- this argument that has been presented to him, and he's reaffirming Christ is enough. Uh, we see... He, 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 and he builds, he continues to build on, on the conversation he has. So you'll see in verses 16 to 15 there in chapter two, that because Christ represents the full revelation of God and because believers are united with, with, with each other in Christ, the conf, the confidence that the Colossians can now have, uh, is in their salvation and the defeat of worldly powers. So then, so their confidence is no longer in their ability. It's in what Christ has already accomplished. Um, and so he's, he's just this, he, he's, progressively building this this argument and presenting Christ as sufficient. He's supreme. He's sovereign. Um, you see, uh, he continues and talks about God's presence in the next section there where victory and salvation are fully reviewed in Christ, revealed in Christ. Um, he's sufficient. Jesus is sufficient for salvation. And this is what Paul is just trying to remind them of. Uh, and so there's no need, and I love this, there's no need to, uh, to pursue additional teachings or practices. Again, he just, he, he hits, he doesn't beat a dead horse, but he hits the hammer and hits the drum enough to provide clarity. It's Jesus plus nothing. And it sounds so cliche because I remember a church years ago, that was like a slogan for them. Jesus plus nothing. Equals everything. Equals everything. Um, and and so it's it's this, he's but he's beating this drum. Christ is enough. You don't need to do anything else. Christ is enough. Follow him, obey him. Uh, and then because he's pl- laying this foundation of Christ being sufficient, he then shifts the conversation in chapter three uh, to, ch- to the beginning of chapter four before he wraps up the letter. And he, he then talks about living according to the cross. Um, in, in the first section, he reveals uh, that since you've been raised to new life, he now tries to paint the picture of the implications of that life. Because of Christ, you are now given a new life. Your old life is gone. So in this next, in, in chapter three and, and some of four, he's going to talk about what that life looks like. He's painting a picture. Here's the implications that it need to happen. And he provides a contrast of the old and new ways of living. He provides guidelines for Christian community. Uh, and then he provides instructions for family relationships. And we see that in uh, chapter or verse 18 to chapter four, verse one. Uh, and it says this, um, I want to read this to us. And this is this will be somewhat of a familiar passage only because I, I referred to a, a similar section in Ephesians last week. Um, I don't believe I read it. I'm sorry if I did, but it's worth reading because there's a point that I want to, I want to hit that was made in, in Colossians specifically. But it says this, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. My wife reminds me of that on a regular basis because I like to sarcastically poke and mess with my kids. Uh, but she says, don't exasperate your children. I'm like, yes, dear. Um, he says from verse 22, slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. He says, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. 
knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done. There is no favoritism. Uh, and I love this because he, 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 in essence, paints this picture in two social settings, not just the household, but also the, the, the Christian assembly, the way ones gather. These are two of the most important social settings where Christians can show the transformative power of the gospel. And I think that's what's so incredible about what Paul is getting at is he's talking about, here's the implications of a life renewed in Christ. There's two social settings, your family and the assembly of believers, the assembly of, of whether it's in a work environment, or whatever, but when the believers come together, it creates a powerful opportunity to show the transformation that exists because of the gospel. And that, in essence, is Paul is reminding us of our call. He's reminding not just Colossians, but us even today as we read it, because there's a lot of easy relevancy to shift over. Uh, but it is this tension in, that exists in understanding that we have the opportunity and the the, the need to then be uh, revealing and helping provide forward movements of the gospel. Uh, he shifts into in, into chapter verse two of chapter four. He gives some final exhortations, which are like one hit proverb quit things, uh, like devote yourselves to prayer. Uh, he kind of gives a quick list there. Uh, and then he hits the, like the final greetings. Um, and one of the things that I love about Colossians is it actually gives us uh, a glimpse into who Paul is with and who Paul has been interacting with. Um, so I thought I'd do something a little bit different here for a few moments. Um, as I wrap up the book of, of Colossians, um, is, is just kind of work through this list for a few seconds. So bear with me, uh, but I'm going to try and hit it quickly. It's just kind of, here's a, a kind of a quick bullet point for each of these people that have been named specifically at the end of uh, Colossians here. Uh, he references Tychicus, uh, who is a believer uh, from the Roman province of Asia, uh, which included also, like I said, Colossians. While Paul was in, Paul was in pri- prison, Tychicus delivered the letters to several churches in Southwest Asia Minor. So he's the one that most likely would have been carrying this letter. Um, Onis- Onisimus, uh, he's a slave that was accompanied by Tychicus to Colossae, um, who had run away from his owner. And there's actually a letter in, in the epistles in the New Testament uh, that we've uh, talked about years in, in the previous year's podcast all the time. Uh, but he writes a letter specifically to Philemon, uh, who is the owner of the slave. Uh, but that's who Anisinus is. He's a, a companion of Tychicus, but it's it's one of the representations that we see con- continued in the letter. Aristarchus is a missionary compa- companion from Thessalonica. He was with Paul in Ephesus and Jerusalem during his voyage to Rome. Mark, who's the cousin of Barnabas, John Mark. This is where there was conflict at one point with John Mark included with Barnabas. Um, Jesus, who was called Justice, he was named, but we know nothing of this man. Um, so Sweet nickname though. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because I, I used to love the name Justice. And this was the verse that I always loved about because it it's like Justice. I just love the way it's spelled. I love the name, um, but we know nothing about Justice, but he was there. He was included. Epaphras, who's like the leader, who one who planted the church at Colossae, um, and and so the which which when Paul says that he testifies about Epaphras, there shows that there might be some concern from the church at Colossae about what happened to Epaphras. Uh, so he's just in essence reaffirming, hey, he's okay, he's doing okay, and everything's fine. Uh, Luke was a missionary companion. Demas. Uh, although he was with Paul at the time of his letter, Demas later deserts Paul and goes to Thessalonica. Kind of go a little random side note there. Uh, Nympha probably is a wealthy single woman or widow. Uh, she hosted the church in her home, uh, and members of the early church typically met in homes. If we didn't, if you didn't know that, uh, Archippus, uh, Archippus uh, mentioned only in this verse in Philemon two, uh, where he's included as part of Philemon's household. 
Um, so there's a really good chance that he served Paul there. Um, and then Paul says this, that the greeting is by my hand, Paul, uh, it would have dict- and it would have dictated this letter. Uh, he would have dictated this to a professional scribe, which we talked about in the past. And so uh, I just thought it was fun to, to, to finally get a list of people and then to see a little bit more about these people. This is the, the audience Paul is not just traveling with, but is ministering with him and seeing him and a part of the, the group of people um, that, that are impacting and helping continue to pr- procure the gospel uh, in the modern day, in the modern day world at that time. Um, but it just, it's just kind of a fun way because Paul is very intentional to highlight who's with him. Sometimes he'll, hey, hey, make sure to greet so-and-so, make sure to greet so-and-so. Um, but it's just the cool connection points that we see Paul as he's writing this letter to Colossae. He's also, there's also very good recognition. And it's also a stamp of approval for Colossae. It's also a re-stamp of approval uh, for Paul himself to help bridge the connection uh, of the early church family that existed in the in the ancient world. And so I just thought it'd be a fun way to kind of, as we're wrapping up, Paul hits this, here's who's to greet these people. Here's who's with me. Um, and just to see some of the, the, the different dynamics of who those people were. So uh, that's how Colossians is going to end. Speaking of books with four chapters, we're also hitting Jonah this week, who is hey. one of the minor prophets and probably I always, I feel like I say this a lot. He's got to be the most famous, right? Of the minor prophets. I would, I can't think of another one where we hear about his story all the time growing up, but who knows? Aaron's going to rack his brain really quick and correct me. I, I think you're I'm right. Wrong. I, I, like, of all the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Jonah's yeah. Malachi. He's the one. Yeah. I mean, Malachi has some like New Testament connections, but I would say that's about right. I'm, I'm with you. So what's weird about this is we've been going through the Old Testament in pretty chronological order in this reading plan. Until now. Yeah. So we're jumping forward like 200 years from hey. where we're at. So this is... Just uh, a breather. We're coming yeah. up for breath of, a breath of air. Well, we're not even going to a good time, though. We're going to the reign of Jeroboam <laughs> II of Israel. But hey, that is when Jonah is doing his prophesying. So this is about 150 years after the split of Israel and Judah. Um, so Jeroboam II, he would be one of those kings. If you remember me and Aaron doing our rankings of kings, or at least our, <laughs> our scale, he would have been what we would call a bad king who was at least secularly a good king, like the the kingdom yeah, is from a worldly standpoint. Everyone's like, man, he's amazing from right. a realistic standpoint, which I would argue spiritually is more realistic. He was an idiot. Yeah. He's similar to Ahab in that, in that way where wah, the, wah. the nation is prosperous, but it's becoming more and more morally corrupt. Anyway, sorry. So Jonah is prophesying during this time. Uh, the Philistines, you know, we, these are the big guys that we're seeing being fought off during the reigns of Saul and David. They're pretty much a thing of the past at this point. And now the new Big boy on the block is the Assyrian Empire, who were one of the first major powers to emerge after the Bronze Age collapse, which happened during the period of the Judges. Um, That's not really brought up in the Bible, but something that we historically know happened is there was these essentially mighty civilizations, um, Egypt and Mycenae among them. And then something happens where almost all of them just collapsed and kind of disappeared, except for Egypt. But Egypt essentially was never the same after that. And that's why we always talk about how one of the really interesting things with Egypt, with Egypt and how long it was around is that um, by the time that it even enters the biblical narrative, it's almost always it's almost already in its twilight. Um, and there's also the joke about how not it's not a joke; it's a fact that Cleopatra lived 
closer to the invention of the iPhone than she lived to the construction of the pyramids. So, oh, snap. Yeah, it's been... It's, that's crazy to think about. Egypt I mean, just is stop to think about that for a second. Like, that's incredible. Oh, man. So anyways, out of that, out of the chaos of that, the Assyrian Empire is one of the first great empires to kind of come out. And then you'll get Babylon and eventually the Persians and the Medes. And then, you know, we get kind of back into history that we know. Uh, so Nineveh is one of the great cities of Assyria, and it has been condemned to destruction by Yahweh. And so Jonah is commanded to travel to Nineveh to deliver the news, uh, but he doesn't want to go. And so, and here's the thing, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, listeners. I had been taught since I was a wee lad that Jonah was afraid to go to Nineveh because of, you know, what are the Ninevites going to do to him? Um, I remember that implication. Yeah. I'm going to challenge that, but we'll, but we'll, We'll wait until we get there later. But suffice to say, Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh and he attempts to flee to Tarshish, which a lot of shh sounds today in the things that we've been having to say. Uh, We don't know Ishbosheth. We don't know exactly where that is, but it's somewhere in the Western Mediterranean probably because he's having to get on a ship. So while he's traveling on the ship, a great storm comes this way and it almost brings the whole ship down. And so everyone's like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Is there anyone who like could have upset the gods? And Jonah's just like... I don't know. And so they kind of keep sailing for a little bit. (laughs) Uh, Uh, And so they all, you know, they say, everyone pray to your gods and we're going to see what's going to happen. So finally, um, they they decide we're going to cast lots because something is going on here. They cast lot. The lot falls on Jonah and Jonah's like, ah, the jig is up. You got me. You know, I've I've angered Yahweh. And they're like, who's Yahweh? Oh, he's just the God of heaven and earth. You know, the one true God. And like, dude, what the heck? And so, why have you been holding out on us? They're really mad. Um, but a credit to the sailors because it would have been very easy for them to just chuck him off the boat and to what, what, yeah, he that would be killing him. Obviously, yeah. something happens, but in the sailors' Deuces. mind, yeah, in the sailors' minds, that's killing him. They try their hardest to make it to land. Eventually, they can't make it there. Um, and what I thought was really interesting is they actually cry out to Yahweh specifically, they don't cry out to their own gods for sa- uh, for salvation. So when you, because remember in the Old Testament or all throughout the scripture, when you see the Lord in all caps, that is the name Yahweh. Uh, we just, in most English translations, we just don't put the name Yahweh there. We put Lord in all capitals. So when they're crying out to the Lord, all caps, they are crying out to Yahweh. Um, eventually, Jonah just says, no, this needs to happen. So they Mm -hmm. ask for forgiveness and then they throw him into the sea. Immediately, a great fish comes and swallows him up. So it's not in the belly of a whale, just saying. Well, it could very well be. Right. But it's it's not necessarily entirely clear. So as a kid, I remember seeing the Pinocchio. That's how I always thought Jonah survived in the belly of a whale. Okay, you ready for this? Because speaking of just getting, you know, Snip, snap, back and forth snip, snap, as, snap, snap. as a kid. So as a kid, you know, it's Jonah and the whale. And then I remember specifically at some point it was like, listen, the Bible doesn't say whale. It says fish. And so God either creates a giant fish, like what we would call a fish today, or there just was one back then that swallowed up Jonah. Um, and so now when I was studying for this, the word fish there is not fish. It's sea creature. So if I mean it could be a giant fish, it could very well be. Um, but or like it could said, be a whale. And the, I believe they were talking about how um, of all of current existing animals, a sperm whale is the one that would actually be able to do this because most whales don't actually have um, large enough throats to to swallow a, a man whole. Um, it's like a blue whale, interesting, real big, but it eats krill. And so it's not built to do that. A sperm whale, on the other hand, also fun. Dude, I'm just, we're going off on all tangents today. I found out that uh, every five minutes, a sperm whale hunts a giant squid. And we don't know that. 
uh, or we never see it, but that's a cool thing to think about. Cause that's like sperm whales are what hunt giant squid, like one of the big things. So somewhere <laughs> in the world right now, just close your eyes listener and imagine that a sperm whale has dove deep into the water and is fighting a giant squid. So over the course of our podcast, there could have easily been 12 different moments of a giant squid. Oh, being dude, I'm all about pursued it. Pursued by a sperm whale. So I think it's awesome. You're welcome for that listener. Anyway. I so hope that enlightened you today. We're, we're not going to remember that more than scripture now. Thanks a lot, Evan. <laughs> we're not told exactly what the creature is, but some great fish of some kind has swallowed up Jonah while he's inside the belly of this uh, inside the belly of this animal, uh, he cries out to Yahweh for essentially forgiveness. He spray, he speaks about how great Yahweh is. Um, he cries out. And it, what's also interesting is he doesn't, he's not crying out for deliverance. He's actually thanking God for the deliverance that he's already provided. So it's not like jo- Jonah's inside uh, the fish and then thinking, oh man, this is it. He's he's realized that this has happened be- specifically because Yahweh has delivered me from the sea. So also he doesn't offer up a prayer for the sailors. So wow, selfish dude. jerk. Yeah. It's almost like Jonah doesn't really approve of people who aren't Israelites. Anyway, so Jonah eventually, Yahweh hears, uh, he relents, and so he causes the fish to, it says, vomit up Jonah onto the dry land, and he makes his way to Nineveh. So while he's in Nineveh, he's just going to go around. He's going to be spree- He's going to be spreading. He's going to be spreading the news that Yahweh has given him. And we bear in mind that this news is not, it's not good news. And I oftentimes thought about, again, speaking of ways that I've heard Jonah before, it's not a message of repentance. It's a message of like, hey, by the way, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. There's not this whole like, unless you do X, but something kind of surprising happens. The people believe him. The mm-hmm. people of, and the, and the Assyrians, if you read scripture, if you look, if you open a history book, not great people, the Assyrians <laughs> kind of known for being what? ruthless. Uh, and yet that is what happens. And so he says, you know, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed, sorry, I'm reading from chapter three here. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh. Ooh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, uh, a proclamation published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from, uh, let, sorry, let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster and he that he had said he would do to them and did not do it. How dare he? So, yeah, it's really interesting because, again, the way that I'd always heard this story is that Jonah goes and it's basically like, a, hey, you know, repent or else this is going to happen. That's not the case. The, he's. It's almost like... um. I always go back to the book of Obadiah where it's literally just a book saying like, hey, Edom, this is what's about to happen to you. That's kind of the message that Jonah is giving to the Ninevites at this point. And yet they actually just almost hoping against hope, they repent and they go away or they and they turn away from their wicked ways, at least for a little bit. I, it, it, it's safe to say that that doesn't last forever, but you know, at least for this generation, hopefully. Um, and so here's where we really get to 
the crux of the book. This is what the book of Jonah is about. And this is kind of the uncomfortable part of Jonah. Like, you know, we hear all the time, you know, Jonah and the whale. We hear that growing up all the time. We don't really talk as much about this part. Uh, So it says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Come on, Jonah. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, Oh Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you well, do you do well to be angry? I love, I love God's sarcasm. I mean, it's just, it's just a beautiful. Um, okay. So here's the thing, right? He straight up says there that the reason he fled to Tarshish was because he was afraid, not of the Ninevites. He was afraid that God was going to show them mercy. He was afraid that he wasn't going to get to, oh my gosh, Jonah does not come out looking good. In, in this book at all. And I think sometimes he's kind of like held up as like, he's one of like the heroes of the faith. Like, nope. no, Jonah's kind of a, oh, we hope he learned his lesson because obviously yeah, right. somehow this story got back to someone who wrote it down, but we're not given any hint that yeah. Jonah learns his lesson in the book. So yeah, he's, he's angry. He's, yep. I, I mean, imagine reading again that, for I knew that you were a gracious God who is merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in love. But he's he's re- he's he's angry about this, and he literally says, "God, just kill me." You know what? If you're gonna show these Ninevites mercy, just kill me over this. So that's where, and that's where it ends. Oh my gosh! Well, yeah, we're gonna get we go a little bit further, but he goes. Jonah, he essentially, he goes out into the city, and he 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 waits to watch because he's just like the Ninevites hoped against hope that Yahweh would be merciful. Jonah is hoping against hope that Yahweh's going to burn the sucker to the ground and, yep. he, and he'll get to watch it. So, and it, apparently, I mean, here's the deal. His plan is, it seems to be he's going to wait like the full 40 days and see what happens. And so he's just going to chill up there. Um, I mean, it's really hot. So God causes the plant to go over him. It gives him some shade, which is really cool. And then the next moment or next morning, the plant is dead. So this is where we're going to pick it up. And then finally, we're going to go here. Uh So it says, so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So, hey, it's giving him shade. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat to classic east wind. Ugh, just devoid of all nutrients. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. Okay, come on, Jonah, you're you're just being a real drama queen here. It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? I love these questions. And he said, yes. Sorry. And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. I love that the ending there is like, also there's, there's cows there. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's not forget about the cattle. So crazy. So yeah, the whole idea of Jonah, like, so Jonah is so consumed with hatred for this people group that he cannot, he, he doesn't want to go there because he's afraid that God will show them mercy. And once God actually shows them mercy, he wants to die. He says, mm-hmm. I would rather die than to see you give this mercy to this people. Yep. And 
I think there's two important things to bring up here. One, this is not an unfounded hatred that Jonah has. The Assyrians are an exceedingly cruel people, and we will see the way that they treat the Israelites. Um, there's a reason why the northern and southern kingdoms diverge so much in the times of Christ, because when the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdoms, they forcibly exile everyone and they spread them throughout the empire. So this is where you get like the lost 10 tribes of Israel mm -hmm. because there's um, it's a diaspora essentially that starts at this point. So the Assyrians aren't great people. The Ninevites aren't great people. And so in, in one sense, we could say that Jonah is justified in how much he hates them. But this is what I think makes the story really powerful is that God is reprimanding Jonah because he does not he does not take the time to view those people that he disagrees with as human beings. Yep. And so Jonah's upset about this plant that happens and God is reprimanding because he says, how are you more upset about a plant that died than you are about the lives of 120,000 people being saved? Yeah. And I think for me, that's really convicting because sometimes we read things, whether it's in the news or whether it's just kind of people we disagree with. We watch tragedy befall people who we don't like, and we kind of rejoice in that. And then something small happens in our life. Like, I, I don't know, it's just, it just kind of convicted me a little bit where you can yeah. read about, you know, whoever your politician is that you don't like and something bad happens and you kind of just like, you know, you chuckle to yourself like, oh, this is hilarious. But then all of a sudden I walk home. Um, or like, yeah, let's say I go home. I don't know why I said walk home. I don't walk. I drive. I'm an adult. Let's say I go home and I'm stuck on like, you know, a really hard level of the Ocarina of Time. And I'm in, you know, I'm in the water temple and I forgot about a stupid door at the bottom and I'm yelling at my TV. In that moment, I was more upset about a dumb video game than I was about something that happened to an actual real human being. That's convicting. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's, it's one of those things with Jonah where... We, we oftentimes don't allow ourselves to sit in the awkwardness of that story. And again, that's not it. The last line is literally, should I not have more pity on the city of Nineveh that has 120,000 people plus cows? Yep. That's it. We don't hear anything about Jonah's reaction. Oh man. It's just a, it's a crazy convicting story, even though we don't have anything close to, um, we don't have anything close to the context of it today as far as like, you know, we don't have this, this people group invading us and going mm -hmm. forward and watching God spare them and all those different things. But the principles of it, I think are absolutely insanely applicable. Absolutely. Today. And I think there's so many, I mean, there's so many easily applicable things in there. It's, it's if, if this group of people or this person were to experience the grace and mercy of Christ and were to give their lives and, and be welcomed into eternity, how would we respond? And, and I remember all throughout my life, there are different moments and conversations that, I mean, I could bring up different groups of people, different types of sinners, and there would be this, nope, they deserve to go to hell. They, there's no redeeming grace for them. There's no quality. And it's, it's that, that we can at least understand a little bit. Um, but it is, it's, it's a definitely convicting story. And, and it also it's like, at the same time, it's just like, what, Jonah, you numbskull, like, come on, man. Like. And he's a, he's a prophet of God, like God uses him even right. though, anyways, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's such a crazy story. Um, I'm going to shift this into Psalms. Uh, I know that we've, we've talked a lot at you, uh, through the, the books we're going to be hitting this week. Uh, so there's actually only three Psalms that we're going to hit. And I would actually suggest there might only be two Psalms that we're hitting today. Ooh. Uh, and, and so Psalms nine through 11, 
Uh, and the reason why I suggest there might be only two real Psalms that you're hitting is because uh, it seems to be that Psalms 9 and 10 were originally meant to be together. Now, why I trust the way the canon was put together as far as our modern day take on scripture, not our take, but our modern day scripture, um, that there was a very strong vetting process that they've done a very great job. I, I trust the canon, the canonicity of scripture. Um, but it seems to be that Psalm 9 and 10 were actually together, Psalms that were associated together uh, and not separate Psalms. We see in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that the, Psalm 9 and 10 were actually together. We see in the Vulgate, Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of all of scripture, that they were actually together as well. Um, and we see that these Psalms are an acrostic, uh, which is in essence, you have the Hebrew alphabet and there's a Hebrew letter A has a, a portion of the, you know, has, has, has a poem or a portion of the poetry written specifically with that in mind, B all the way through the, the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, and we see that the first half of the Hebrew alphabet is, acrostic is covered in Psalm chapter nine. And the second half of the Hebrew alphabet is covered in Psalm chapter 10. Now, here's the interesting thing about these two Psalms is you see in Psalm 9 and, and you see in Psalm 10 almost as a contrast, that they actually don't seem beyond the, the form, beyond the, the overarching reality of truth and scripture. You, you almost see like they're two separate Psalms being written, but I, I, I would suggest that they're actually probably one entire Psalm written together with two perspectives meant to encourage the other. Hmm. And what I mean by that is Psalm, Psalm chapter 9 is a praise Psalm for the Yahweh and his works. So it's celebrating God's provision, it's celebrating God's works. And then we see in Psalm 10, that's a lament, which if you need to know about a lament, there's the petitions for help and complaint for sufferings. That's kind of the, the indicators of what a lament is, whether it's an individual lament and based upon the person, the pronoun being, I am crying out, God, I need you to save me uh, versus a, a, a corporate lament, which I've, I've kind of identified these things over the last, how many ever episodes now, um, but that that's what kind of indicates that it's a lament is there's complaints for suffering and there's a petition for help in some form, way, shape or form. Uh, but we, so we see this lament Psalm in position next to a praise, praise Psalm. And, and, and what I love about it is you see this total picture. You see the praise for Yahweh and his works combined with the lament Psalm is really meant to help provide hope and confidence in God's provision in the midst of the lament. Um, and not every lament psalm ends with praise for God. Not every lament that we read in the psalms ends with a an affirmation in that regard. But Psalm 9 and 10 together, you're going to see this praise portion of an acrostic followed up with a lament portion of an acrostic of the same Hebrew, Hebrew alphabet. Uh, and so that's why I think it's kind of, I, I would suggest it's probably both these psalms were actually originally meant to be one psalm uh, because of the form and the way it was put together. That's that's my take on it as I've been reading. I thought it was a really cool comparison. Uh, and I wish I could sit down and read. I wish I could read both psalms to you today, uh, but I'm not going to. I'm going to let you enjoy that this week. Uh, and then finally, we read, well, we're going to read psalm, psalm 11, which the interesting thing about Psalm 11 is that it it is categorized as a lament psalm, but it actually lacks some of the indicators that it would be a lament psalm. It lacks petition for help and it lacks the complaint for sufferings. It actually expresses and focuses on the confidence in Yahweh. It focuses on confidence. Like I, he is my refuge. And then it produ produces reasons for complaint and the sufferings they face, but it, it has a hope filled, confident, uh, uh, tone in how the psalmist writes. Um, 
Shifting back to Psalm 9 and 10 for a second, Psalm 10 actually doesn't have a title, which again would only indicate that it probably is meant to go together with Psalm 9. I mean, you've got to say that one piece. So anyways, all that to say, those are the Psalms we're going to read today. I'm not going to read one. Uh, Today, I'm going to let you enjoy reading them this this week as we uh, continue in the reading plan. But uh, those are the three Psalms we're hitting today, or dare I say, two Psalms we're reading this week. Oh, snap. And on that note, listeners, that actually does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we're a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other podcasts and resources on our website, grove.church. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.